Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Happy Monday to you. Uh, as we always do at this point, uh, we have someone in to have a gander at some of the stories from the weekend or uh, in uh, the case of the first one, we're going to be talking uh, about a story that's still breaking as we speak. Anyway, today's guest is Finn Dwyer, host of the Irish History Podcast. Finn, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Sean. So we have a new uh, a British uh, Prime Minister, the second unelected Prime Minister uh, in uh, in. in <laughs> about <laughs> well, what six weeks or something uh, is there kind of a historical precedent for this kind of thing uh, to find it amusing might be the wrong term but yeah. I, I definitely think there's I don't know if there's a historical precedent internally within the British parliamentary system but I definitely think there's a historical precedent and they used to go around the world slaughtering people around the world and then imposing various di- different types of leaders on different parts of the world and imposing economic experiments <laughs> And there's some sort of, I don't know, is it historic irony that they're going to start doing this at home now. We had Liz, Liz Truss's attempt at a, uh, an economic policy. Yeah. Well, yeah, it had echoes of uh, economic policies from the 1840s. Which, But uh, I think it's like, I don't know, I suppose it's all the outworking of Brexit though, ultimately. And I think, I don't know, Sunak is probably not going to, like, there may be short-term stability, but... Uh, the other thing you have to wonder as well is everyone talks about will the market be happy and it's like mm, yeah. who is this beast out there that needs to be sated? Who are essentially yeah because I, I, but, it, but it is true I mean it's getting it's getting it got a lot of play over the last week or so but essentially all governments have to worry about what the markets are going to yeah. think. Uh, like, politicians have less power than perhaps people imagine. I think it is and it, like certainly if in terms of like economic policies that you know, certain governments may want to try and do, like in terms of nationalisation of infrastructure, mm. the markets tend not to like that kind of thing. Yeah. But in terms of like public interest, might be a better idea. And certainly in terms of like a climate uh, policy and stuff like that, big public transport is probably going to be a central part of that. But uh, yeah, I don't know. At some point, surely we'll have to re- have a reckoning with the markets, whatever they are, wherever, yeah. wherever they live. Uh, yeah, that'd be a difficult reckoning, <laughs> I, I would imagine, given that they're, yeah, they're multinational and all over the place. So, but, would you be, I mean, because it affects us, obviously, but, but I mean, would you be generally phlegmatic over, over uh, Rishi Sunak getting it rather than any of the other ones? I don't, like, Tories are Tories at the end of the year. <laughs> they? Like, you know, I don't have expectations. <laughs> Boris Johnson, I found a particularly annoying individual, but I don't think Rishi Sunak is going to be any better and he's going to have to pander to the ERG and all those groups that we never heard of the 1922 committee and all these people who certainly I don't think they've changed and they'll still exert influence over him like we'll see I suppose the big things in relation to the north and the backstop Mm. but yeah Tory is a Tory well when Trust was in there they were were kind of they seemed to be playing nice there seemed to be a distinct change in tone so we'll see what your man does. We'll see. We'll see. I, I think like he he is going to try and though, presumably unify the Tory Party, and unifying that as a he could be. I, I would just fear that he'll start appealing. He'll have to in some way appeal to the loony fringe on the right, yeah. and I would fear that that will. The North has often become a, a good whipping boy in Br- British politics, so you'd, yeah. w- you'd be fearful for that. Well, I mean, he got he got more than fifty percent of the MPs yeah. nominated him, so he's he's within Parliament. He's a, he, he's a good uh, rump of uh, support, and he did set himself out as like the sensible one, the only grown up in the room. Uh, now, I mean, and many people, even in his own party, were surprised that he was a Brexiteer at all. 
Uh, because he's kind of seen as being on, you know, on the on the left of the Tory party. Uh, uh, he's, he's no communist, but uh, he's on the left on the left of the Tories. Yeah, they were. I heard someone talking about it today, though, and they were making the point that Sunak also, when he was running against Truss, Truss started advocating for tax cuts here, there, and everywhere. So it's like he was sensible, but he was sensible in a pretty wild race. Like you know, yeah. so it's like you know, it's it's the guy who wins like the. Uh, you know, we're, in my hometown, there was a, a thing called a welly race, you know, where you had to run four miles for, for uh, a charity. You know, mm. winning that race doesn't make you a, 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 a great <laughs> athlete. And that's what I would think about the leader of the Tory party. Winning that race, it's a very select group you're appealing to. And I, I, I look, he has to prove himself, but my, my standards and expectations are low. Yeah. I, it's going to, I'd say it's going to be very tough. In like in working class communities in Britain, they've suffered a lot in the last and like mm. the, the, these statements of, you know, there's going to be more austerity, whatever they're going to call it this time. But, you know, there's not a lot to give like you know, in a lot of those. No, places. no, it's true. Uh, it's true. But you see, at the same time, you, I, I wonder that many members of many members, elected MPs in the Tory party seem to have a view of the membership of the Tory party is that they're like. That they don't have that much in common. That these are kind of a, a, a bunch of kind of very right wing, fringy people, mostly white, mostly male, mostly living in the south of England, who have a particular view of the world, and 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 these MPs don't have that view of the world. Uh, and it, the somehow the Tory party's got themselves into this weird bind that this kind of people who live on Twitter are are electing the, you know, <laughs> the next MP. Or the next PM, I should it say. It seems to be definitely that an influx of when UKIP collapsed. Yeah. They came in and I thought they've managed now to hold the balance of power in the Tory party. And like they're, yeah. Like in Nigel, if Nigel Farage is the balance of power, you've got a problem. Like, you know. Yeah. Uh, though you see, but that's why I, I kind of wonder if Rishi Sunak kind of knows he's going to have to pander to those people a little bit. Uh, but that isn't where his thrust is. His, his thrust is trying to do kind of sensible economics and. Uh, and because Britain's economically heading towards being a basket case at the moment. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. You, know, you, you might tune into the BBC or whatever and they're talking about food banks and the scale of them. Mm. Like, it's real back to like Dickensian politics of like, you expect them next to open up workhouses again or, you know, like that's yeah. it. it. It's not bright wherever it is. Yeah, it is. Uh, right. OK, on to something cheerier. Uh, <laughs> uh, the Black Death. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the Black Death and actually... The other disease related to this, Crohn's disease, are two things, oddly enough, that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. I have one and I've written a book on the other. So, <laughs> Listeners, can you guess which one it is? <laughs> An interesting twist if I said I had the black death. But uh, no, it's uh, it's interesting that uh, autoimmune diseases, they are now reckoning, there was a story out over late last week and over the weekend, that autoimmune diseases emerged uh, basically through the black death, that if you had a more active immune system, you're obviously more likely to survive it. So that mm. selected out those people within the broader population because upwards of 40% of the European population die in the 1340s. But that then left uh, people like myself with an overactive immune system more likely, more uh, present in the population. So the autoimmune diseases like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis are partly related to that, like I suppose bottleneck in the in the genetic profile of yeah. Europeans that had emerged in the aftermath because obviously you would have a better chance of surviving something like the plague if you have a vicious immune system but if that starts to attack your own body it's not a brilliant one either. So it's a, yeah, it's, it's a mixed blessing and, and why have you been thinking a lot about the Black Death 
I'm actually, um, um, I wrote a book on it six, seven years ago and actually uh, recently the actor Timothy Chalamet uh, at the Venice Film Festival said that uh, societal collapse is in the air. You can smell it. And it actually started making me think about historical parallels. And actually, I think the 14th century, you know, there's parallels between what we're living through now. I don't think COVID or anything is like the Black Death. Like that would be like, mm. but I think... We're living in a time like they did then where you've got several big crises going on at the same time, all feeding into each other rather than one individual thing. And I think there's, I don't think societal collapse is what, I think people are wrong when they envisage things like that, but I think society can be transformed over the space of a generation to that if you look back, you can't recognise the world you grew up in. And I think there's evidence that we'll probably live through a certain amount of change. And even already, if you look back to like the 1980s, Mm. That was a pretty different time. But I think with climate, uh, already the war in Ukraine, there's a lot of different things that are going to probably have a profound impact on our world. Yeah. So like, yeah. In necessarily a bad way. Yeah, like, I think out of all these things, there's always the possibility for positive. Uh, there there would be a lot of bad. I'm not going to say that. Like, uh, a pandemic is never good. War is never good. But I think these situations can offer potentials for positive change. Mm. But I think it's, uh, I, I, at the moment, I don't think we're handling any of these things particularly well, like, you know, climate change, pretending at the grand in the future. Yeah. That's not going to solve that one. And it'll impose change on us one way or another. Yeah. They are now, but though at the same time, not to be Pollyanna-ish about it, the, the, uh, the fact that there is a war in Ukraine and, and, and it sent uh, fuel prices rocketing is probably making a lot of people think, just from a self-interested point of view, <laughs> yeah, yeah. how can I use less, yeah. Yeah, less fossil fuels? And that might have a knock-on effect. I think it certainly uh, opens the possibility for change. You know, previously, if someone's going, oh, you do you mind just like using less? Yeah. You're not going to do it. Whereas someone goes, okay, I'm going to like, you're going to pay a lot of money to use this. It does force you to look at ways you can, um, you know, reduce use. But I think, like, there's a bigger question about, you know, there's very dispiriting things when you look at this, the amount of, you know, carbon emissions that industry pumps into the air and you're like this tiny little, yeah, like, you know, yeah. when you go out and recycle in the afternoon or in the evening, you're kind of like, you know, the impact of that versus like, then you hear of a data centre, like, burning through, like, however much energy that year or that, you know, in a given year. So I think there's going to have to be a uh, societal approach too. But, you know, I think individual stuff is important in terms of, getting us all aware of this, you know. Well, no, uh, but, there, yeah, but I, yeah, I, I think you're right. There isn't enough finger pointing at the huge offenders, uh, yeah. uh, especially the corporate huge yeah. offenders. See, uh, apart from the, well, what about China kind of argument that uh, uh, people often kind of uh, uh, wield out. Well, actually, because it's, it, it's, uh, you did want to talk about the stop oil protesters as well, and you probably heard in the bulletin there. Yeah, They're after mashing a load of cake into Prince Charles's face, or at least the, the waxwork model of Prince Charles. Or, sorry, King Charles. Yeah, Give him a demotion Charles, there. How dare you? Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the, and f- f- we had John Gibbons on last week and he was talking about those kind of protests as well. And, uh, you know, there's lots of pearl clutching that they're, de- you know, perhaps defacing property and they threw mashed mm. potato with a painting at the weekend and that kind of stuff um, without actually perhaps examining why they're doing this. Yeah, like, personally, I'm just not sure the protests are effective, mm. but the outrage towards these people personally I think it probably comes from a knowledge that we know they're right you know it's kind of like when someone goes the world is a really serious problem and you're going but I was living this lovely life where I didn't have to pay attention to this and now you're forcing me to look at it 
the re- I just find the outrage towards these people bizarre. Like, if, if you want to point fingers, like we're talking about there, like ExxonMobil, like they're literally burning the planet <laughs> down. They're the ones to be annoyed at. Whereas, like, you know, someone, I don't know, whatever, like putting cake on Prince Charles's face, gluing themselves to a lock. It's not, you know, it's not, this is not good. Like, you might be delayed for work. And I'm not saying that, that's, I don't think it's effective to target the general population because, mm. but this narrative of, like, oh, you know, you see it in some of the British tabloids, like, I'm going to go out and burn more fuel today. And it's like, this is affecting you whether you agree with that person or not. So I think, I think that that kind of stuff is going to become more common. It'll probably become more extreme in terms of the actions that people are taking because like, there's definitely people feeling that if this is the end of the world, someone yeah. has to, to, to scream. So I think, yeah, I think reactions to it are probably a little short-sighted. Yeah, though. Then, I mean, when we had John on, there was a there was a lot of uh, um, huffing and puffing on Twitter about, oh, you're, you know, that, and he wasn't, but then, you know, making out that he was encouraging people to uh, uh, deface property and break the law, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but every single one of those Twitter accounts didn't have a, an actual name attached to them, <laughs> and, and they were all climate deniers anyway. So uh, uh, whether they were in the pay of Exxon Mobil, uh, we'll never know. Uh, but they, they that kind of faux outrage about the action itself whilst ignoring the bigger picture, is almost like a deliberate political strategy sometimes, you can't help but think, you know? Yeah, like it's, like given the scale that we face with climate change, even if you want to adopt the best model that science is offering, that's terrible, that's an awful future, like like the best outcome. And yeah, you know, you can go, that's not effective. I think that's a totally valid argument. I think, you know, we need to engage in people. If you want people to take action on climate, you need to engage the majority of people, not like, make them late for work because that annoys all of us. But at the same time, kind of like what Liz Truss was talking about, like, you know, bringing in, like treating these people as if they're going to be like potential jading and things like that. It's like, okay, like this is like, like it's an easy stick for the Tories to Mm, to, to to, bang on. Because it's law and order and all that kind of stuff. But I suppose the difficulty is with, with, with getting more people engaged with it is that it's not. It's a kind of a slow moving thing, so you can't point to. There's one specific thing. Yeah. The train's coming down the tracks right now. And we have to jump out of the way, or, or you know, uh, a, a terrible analogy. I know, but there's a great, there's a great uh, uh, tweet. Actually, speaking of tweets, just about the uh, you know the the when they uh, threw the soup over Van Gogh or whatever, and it was saying that. Uh, the big problem is that or the museum itself will eventually be flooded and the painting will be completely destroyed along with everything else in there. So, like, you know, again, this thing of, like, let, let's get all this in perspective, like, you know. So I, yeah. I think that's sadly probably a more accurate than the, the outrage of, like, these people. Yeah. Well, plus also the, I think there's a, a, often another problem that it's so depressing yeah. that, that yeah. people can go, oh, well, yeah, what's the point? Why should I, you know, I was jumping up and down in my, in my recycling bin, you know, to see you can stuff more in because today's bin day. Uh, uh, sorry, I don't want to put it out and spend more money on the bin. But they're like, why, you know, why should an individual do that? Because it all just seems so hopeless. And yeah, that's no, probably, and the more we mention it, to a certain extent, it engenders hopelessness. Uh, I did. Like, I think, it, like, definitely, I go through phases of, like, trying to avoid conversations like this. Like, <laughs> you know, like, there's probably someone out there going, turn off that radio. It's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, like, a, it's, it's a hard one to engage with. Yeah. You know. Uh, anyway, also, you want to talk about, uh, well, I mean, this, people are saying, now, you don't live in Dublin. You used to live in Dublin. Yeah. Yeah. I, I left Dublin in 2018. Yeah. Various different factors. I moved to Kenya and I live in Waterford now, but I find when I come back up, I come back up for work quite a lot. And, but like the price of things, I don't think, I don't know how I'd live in Dublin now. 
Like, mm. you know, it's just like you go out and you're like, where did all that money go? <laughs> it's, it's, there's, I don't know who Dublin is. Like, and I'm, you know, you, you look at people who can afford this and like, who's supposed to live in Dublin? Who's, who is the, you know, any city has to have the people who live there, Dubliners. But like, the price of very basic things out are just, like when I come back and I see it or friends tell me what they're paying for rent, it's shocking. Like, And that the, there was an article talking about people just not being able to live here. And yeah, I, I, it's very hard to see where that bottoms out because the cost of living has gone way ahead of wages. And mm. unless there's some, it's very hard to see how that's reversed. And unless there's a, like housing would be obviously one great solution to that. But that at the very least is years away. And you kind of get the sense bit like climate, there's been a lot of talk about this, but people have been talking about, you know, the problems in Dublin. I actually think the last time I was in here, we were probably talking about <laughs> the problems in Dublin, but it's a, it's a conversation that people are having, but it's almost what you discuss about. It's almost becoming a feature of life in Dublin, like Lonely Planet will talk about it. Dublin is an expensive city, yeah. but it's not like Paris can say that or London can say that. But like, you know, a city that has like three days of the week where there's nothing going on is like, you know, I, I don't know. If yeah, that's... well, it's, yeah, Paris is an expensive city, but people live in the centre of Paris. Like yeah. ordinary, not super wealthy people or people on two year contracts with Google who are living down on, you know, one of those expensive apartments in, uh, on the Keys or whatever. Yeah, but also I think Paris also has a lot going on. Like, you know, it's like, <laughs> I always think about that like when you see Dublin as being one of the most expensive. I, like I love Dublin, but it's like. It's it's a very it's not a friendly city in terms of like the, the welcoming in terms of for people who want to make a life here like yeah it's kind of been hollowed out a bit do you think in in a, in a cultural sense oh definitely I think I was only talking about this recently um, to someone about putting on live podcasts for example mm. and like venues which would, you know be the same for music venues or anything like that live music spaces are really hard to come across you know in terms of you're going from very small ones then to somewhere like the um, the the point or the, the tree arena or yeah. whatever. Um, and you know that's grand if you're able to fill the tree arena but like you know some of us would like somewhere maybe in between <laughs> and you know it doesn't have that like where culture comes from and where both people who create like be a podcast or art or whatever it is have somewhere to do that and more importantly the people who live in the city can go and socialise that Dublin has lost all that and I think it's going to be very hard to get it back because everything seems to be hotels um, like there's an addiction to hotels in Dublin I can't oh, believe yeah, it when I come back yeah. and it's like who are these people staying in these hotels or I don't know is it a tax break or I don't know what it reason? is but it's almost like if you like you, you, place you usually park your car you go there and there's a feckin' hotel built there you know they can squeeze it into the yeah. most extraordinarily small yeah, no, it is. Uh, small spaces anyway that was, a, that was a very cheery tour on the world Finn uh, thanks for that that was uh, Finn Dwyer uh, host of the Irish History Podcast uh, coming to you live in a medium sized venue sometime soon but probably not in Dublin uh, Finn thanks a million uh, let's find out how much is in the cash machine Moncrief. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Weekdays at 2pm on News Talk.